3: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations a lot of these were sponsored by the church
0: what does it mean to say that the christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there um you're always uh being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects
3: welcome to the magnificast a podcast about christianity and leftist politics i'm matt i teach media studies at greenville university and uh here I am doing this podcast.
1: Uh, I'm Dean. I am a PhD student in philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and uh, here I am doing this podcast.
3: Here I am. It's his podcast. It's the <laughs> here uh, we are. The the Weird Al parody of uh, Here I Am to Worship. All right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, in this episode, we have a really cool interview with Heath Carter on May Day, and uh, you're going to really dig it. There's lots of cool stuff uh, in there about. Uh, the history of Christianity and leftism and, uh, sort of its impact on the labor movement and lots of really good sort of instructive moments for your own organizing and activism, I think. Uh, (laughs) but before we get that far, I have a really funny iTunes review that I need to, uh, read and, uh, Dean hasn't heard it yet. So I, am really excited for his, uh, his completely honest reaction to this. My uh, ears there wide open. (laughs) So uh, this is a five out of five star review, obviously. Uh, and it is uh titled Magnificats.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh,
3: so this user writes, eagerly downloading what I dyslexically interpreted to be a series of hour-long declamations on the hijinks of a number of notable felines. I instead <laughs> found a pair of academics nimbly navigating the intersection of Christianity and leftist politics, which you know is pretty good too. big <laughs> <laughs> <Good> consolation prize. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, yeah. So unfortunately, this is the Magnificast. Uh. You can check out the other podcast, Magnificats, for the cats, but you know, different podcasts, not ours.
1: Different podcasts.
3: Different podcasts. Someone's got that out there, right? That's a, that is the name of someone's podcast. Their podcat.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's uh, get rid of get rid of these podcasts and uh, get over to Heath Carter.
0: Jesus Christ was a man that traveled through the land. Hard working man and brave. He said to the rich, Give your goods to the poor. So they laid Jesus Christ in his grave.
1: So this week it is May Day. In fact, today when we're recording it, it's May Day. So we're talking with Heath Carter. Or no, wait, tomorrow's May Day. What is it? Tomorrow's today? May Day. <laughs> right, it's April 30th. All right, well, by the time this comes out, it's going to be long after May Day anyway. Uh <laughs> in any case, uh we're talking with Heath Carter in light of uh, May Mayday this week, and we're really excited about it. We talked to Heath a while back, uh, in an episode on his book Union Made. Um and in this episode we're gonna talk a little bit about some of his research in a, a book that he edited with some other folks called The Pew and the Picket Line. Uh but before we just kinda jump into it, Heath, what have you been up to lately?
2: Uh I have been doing a lot of teaching and grading. We've got we've got about uh... 10 days left before the end of the semester here at Valparaiso University where I teach um, and and also a good bit of conferencing I, I've been uh, going to a number of different conferences to talk about this new book that I'm working on which is a kind of new history of social Christianity in the United States um, so definitely keeping busy here at the end of the academic year
1: nice that sounds that awesome sounds pretty cool yeah <laughs> uh, that book sounds awesome anyway uh, maybe we can hear a little bit more about that in a minute. Matt, what have you been up to?
3: Uh, yeah, same. Uh, it is the end of the semester. I've got a lot to grade, a lot to teach. Uh, tomorrow is uh, is Greenville's big like interdisciplinary senior presentation day, and uh, all my students are giving these uh, really big presentations on incarceration and Christianity. So it'll be a pretty wild day. I'm really stressed out just thinking about it. Kind of got a tummy ache already, but uh, tomorrow <laughs> it'll all be over, so it'll be fine. Nice. Uh yeah. that sounds pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What have you been doing,
1: Dean? Uh not too much. I did go to a very cool May Day event uh this weekend on Saturday, um, at the the United Steelworkers Hall. That was really fun. So the Communist Party of Canada was there and a bunch of union people and um representatives from the Cuban embassy. That was pretty funny and cool. Um uh, <laughs> yeah. I heard some Korean drumming from a Korean drum ensemble. Uh it was a good time overall.
3: Yeah, that's neat. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, looking forward to May Day. It's the sort of high holiday of like everyone on the left, so um, it'll be a cool time. Um, it's like important to remember and conceptualize right. So uh, to get kind of in the May Day spirit, um, Dean and I started looking into this book that, uh, that Heath, you edited, uh, called Pew and the Picket Line, yeah. uh, which is a great title, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's a good one. Uh, so it's a cool book that you, you edited there's a lot of good essays in there um, there's one of one of my favorites that I started looking into uh, last night was about Cairo Illinois that's uh, not so far from where I live so it holds a special oh, okay. place in my heart yeah. it's a really a really neat story well anyways um, so why is this, uh the pew and the picket line an important intersection to make note of? Why like the uh so the pew in the sense of the religious uh aspect of people's lives, but the picket line in the sense of the uh aspect of labor? Like why are that why is that an important uh intersection? Why do you think that people uh should look at that and why do you think that people ignore those things historically?
2: Yeah. Um Yeah, I think the Pew and the Picket Line, uh, you know, I I edited this book with uh, two friends and colleagues, Chris Cantwell and Janine Giordano-Drake, and we were um, interested in what we see as a pretty central intersection for shaping modern life um, and and an intersection of where people's lives at work and what their kind of fundamental beliefs and uh, religious practices, what they have to do with. Um, economic life, life at work, uh, everyday life in the world. Um, so, I mean, the book is looking at the the intersection from a whole host of different angles, from yeah, the experience of Black power advocates in places like Cairo, Illinois, all the way back into the kind of classical period, uh, the late 19th century, when you get um, the emergence of new working class theologies um, that are trying to make sense of Industrial capitalism and its meaning for the modern world, offering a kind of working class critique of that, along the lines of what I, I talk about in my my own book Union Made. Um, so, I mean, I think I think this has been and continues to be a vitally important intersection historically. Um, you know, May Day not often thought about as a kind of religious holiday, partly because um, it, you know it's it's associated with the more radical wing of the international labor movement. The reality, and I think this is something that many uh, folks today don't realize, is that there are extensive connections between kind of the worlds of Christianity and the radical labor movement. Um, the Haymarket Martyrs, who I mentioned a moment ago, who whose uh, death in 1886 in Chicago, you know, many of them were not traditional Christians, but they were deeply interested in the person of Jesus and saw Jesus as, in many cases, a kind of Exemplar of uh, you know justice in the world, um, and we're constantly lifting him up. In fact, in the months before, yeah, after their trial and and, and in, in the days leading up to their execution, um, August Spies, who was one of these Haymarket martyrs, was thinking about his experience as a radical worker and and his his efforts to kind of galvanize a radical workers' movement. Very much as a kind of parallel modern parallel to the kinds of uh, things that Jesus was up to in his lifetime. In fact, he explicitly compares makes explicit analogies between uh, the Haymarket martyrs and the um, twelve disciples and Jesus and whatnot and calls the you know it talks about the Jerusalem Board of Trade and whatnot. So uh, you know lots and lots of connections and I mean part of the fun of this book, um, which is which is an edited volume with essays from all over kind of the country, is that it gives you just a sense of the variety of ways that religion and working class life have been coexisting and um, mutually reinforcing in different ways through the last 150 years. Uh,
3: that's cool. We were just talking about August Spees in the last episode, so uh, he's fresh in our mind. Always fresh in our minds, August Spees.
2: <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
1: fresh never frozen august bees um it kind of when you were talking uh, it made me think of a quote that we found from eric Hobsbawm, uh the marxist historian who says mayday is uh let me have it here um he says mayday is perhaps the only unquestionable dent made by a secular movement in the christian or any other official calendar and on the one hand i mean there's something true about that right it's, it's uh mayday not a it's not a christian holiday right um and there, as you were just saying there's all kinds of reasons why it's it's kind of important to note that difference, but at the same time, uh, characterizing it as a secular movement is somewhat complicated too, because there's all kinds of really interesting religious strands, I guess, that feed uh, feed into both the Haymarket kind of origins of May Day and then May Day more generally. So, uh, yeah, maybe could you give us a little bit more like a uh, flavor about how like religion is is feeding into uh, May Day as it's been celebrated and um, in its kind of origins.
2: Well, I mean, I think, I think obviously there's ebbs and flows in the kind of history of Christian involvement in the radical labor movement and in the labor movement more broadly. But I think about, uh, you know, really the, the late 19th century and then the mid 20th century as two periods where you have really extensive um, overlap in those two spheres. So, I mean, you know, I, obviously I, t- I, I write in Union Made about kind of that late 19th century period where you have a lot of working people who are um, questioning the kind of consensus view that um, Christianity is on the side of capital and and workers really probing and pushing against that, pushing against the institutional churches, questioning their ties to um, emerging corporate structures in the Gilded Age United States. those themes would never kind of go away. In fact, they would. They, they became really important in the mid-20th century. And I think about people like um, Dorothy Day, who uh, obviously out of a Catholic tradition is going to come to be a, a major supporter of um, labor, including in its most radical forms. Someone like uh, Cesar Chavez, who is going to also draw, I mean, part of what's so interesting to me, and there is a tradition here, people like Day and Chavez in the mid twentieth century, uh, Catholic um, you know b- proponents of of working class activism, are drawing explicitly on on Gilded Age encyclicals that were in part a response to the working-class activism of an earlier period. Um, So I think about, you know, you think about May Day, again, people don't often think about it in in religious terms, but um, there's no question that some of the most important um, leaders and theorizers of working-class activism in the modern United States and also around the world have been uh deeply inf- influenced by their their faith and and religious views.
1: Yeah, uh I think that's great and that's what I love so much about your work, especially as a Christian person who cares about labor stuff, I guess. Um and maybe speaking about that like for organizers and and activists, like how do you think that these histories can or should be used? Like how could they inform uh the work that the labor movement is doing today?
2: Yeah, we had a we had an event um Chris and Janine and I uh, this past fall did an event with interfaith worker justice in Chicago and where we had an opportunity to kind of see what in this book is interesting to uh, contemporary activists. I think the thing that, Um, I find really to be important about the kinds of stories that we're telling in the pew and the picket line, the kinds of, um, work that is, uh, there's more and more of, I think right now, as, as both religious historians and labor historians explore this intersection of religion and labor, is it punctures the kind of contemporary, uh, or, or recent, I don't know if it's a consensus anymore. Um, I think, I think things are shifting, um, maybe maybe very significantly shifting. But certainly by, you know, in the kind of heyday of the new right in the 1980s, 90s, early 2000s, I think there was a, a pretty widespread sense, um, and this is partly kind of a product of the kind of success of a neoliberal resurgence in the late 20th century, that economic life, that the market is somehow beyond or impervious to moral and ethical reflection or that the market, I mean, in some renditions of it, is the best uh, agent of a moral economy itself, untempered, unchecked, that the market is is going to to produce that or that, you know, the market is just going to do whatever it's going to do. And it's really not worthwhile to reflect ethically or morally on it. It's just it's sort of like part of nature. And I think what you can see in the the kind of work that's emerging now on these intersections of Christianity, the labor movement, socialism, and whatnot, is that uh, those kinds of assumptions, which did did partly you know really shape late twentieth century American life, um, are contingent historical assumptions and ideas that it hasn't people haven't always thought that. Uh, in fact, uh, American life hasn't always reflected those assumptions and we can look to earlier moments in the history where there really are vibrant debates about, um, the morality of the free market, about the necessity of working class activism, um, as a check on greed and the, the wealthy. Um, so I think that, you know, you see in these histories, uh, roads not traveled. Roads that could still be traveled, other possibilities beyond um, what we see and have seen for some time as kind of normal um, and, and given. Cool. Well speaking of those histories, I guess
3: I, I want to hear you see, uh, I want to hear you speak a little bit of, on a uh, kind of theoretical level about history maybe. Sure. Um, uh, be, because uh, what you what you do in the intro to the book uh, Pew and the Picket line is really interesting in terms of like what histories you're listening to and what histories we're counting. Um, so in the introduction, uh, you note that like, I don't know, the history of religion, uh, and worker struggles, uh, revolved around sort of Protestant ecclesial hierarchies and institutions. Um, but there's like a lot more to be said than just like what's going on there. And you you have this kind of like great way of talking about, uh, the ways that some historians only kind of focus on the clergy or the pastors, um, but, uh, that, uh, your approach is to look more at the, uh, the work. Like, like the workers themselves and kind of the ordinary lives of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so why why do you think it's important to talk about mass movements behind some of the uh, more obvious leaders like of pastors and priests? Why is that something we should uh, take our time to do?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, as a historian, I mean, Chris Jean and I, the editors have all been pretty significantly influenced by uh, social history and by labor history, both of which are uh, – historical traditions that see ordinary people's activism and ordinary people's lives as um not just sort of uh, decoration in in terms of filling in the the kinds of dec- decor on the real story which is about the great people who have shaped our 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 societies but that working people ordinary people have have made a, a real impact um I, I, you know i think at the in the I think it's the epilogue of war and peace. Tolstoy talks about the, you know, um, in thinking about his own philosophy of history, he says, you know, some people think that you can tell history through whatever Napoleon's orders were, whatever, you know, Napoleon said is what happened. But, you know, Tolstoy points out, like, actually, in fact, uh, lots of things that Napoleon wanted to happen didn't happen. Mm. And so how do you explain that? And I think part of the way that um, social historians, labor historians would argue is that, you know, things like something like the New Deal... Didn't descend from on high, and uh, you know. But in fact, as Liz Cohen argues in her book, uh, *The Making of the New Deal*, that that um, this is made by workers. Workers create the space for that, and we see the same thing. And it's not just true of political life; it's true of of religious life. That um, I think you know the old ways of telling the history of Christianity through the stories of denominational leaders, through the stories of pastors. Um, are that those are important and they're part of the story, but they're not the whole story. Um, when I was writing Union Made, I mean, part of my part of my question, and this partly came from my own experience as someone who grew up going to church and 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 knew that you know what, what do people do when they they uh, they go to church? They so leave church and you talk about the sermon. You know, it's not like you know the, the pastor preaches a sermon. It's not like that's delivered and accepted as is. But there's a conversation about it and. And those conversations happen at the, that smallest level around a, a dining room table or whatnot. They also happen at the big level, and 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 ordinary folks, ordinary believers shape the history and and reality of kind of Christian institutional life, of uh, Christian doctrine and teaching. I mean, these these are all things that are shaped through struggle, shaped through contest. And I think that's part of one of the assumptions of the Pew and the Picket Line and, and of a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is that, um, you know, Christianity, the meaning of Christianity for modern life is not given, it's not obvious, it's shaped through struggle. And, and working people, ordinary people have, have played central roles in, in that struggle and in trying to define um, the meaning of Christianity for the modern world.
1: Yeah, let's uh, maybe talk a little bit more about some of those specific struggles, um, at least ones that maybe stick out to you or have stuck out to you uh, and your colleagues. So, yeah, what are some of the more prominent struggles or groups or movements that kind of show this connection or this history from below about Christianity and, and labor?
2: The, the story is that uh, this struggle is happening everywhere all the time. And so, um, you know, in terms of specifics, I think about, like, chapters in this in this book, in The Picket Line, like the chapter on Emma Tenayuka, who's a, a kind of Catholic and Pentecostal, sort of fudge, you know, between these religious communities, um, woman and worker who galvanizes a pecan-sheller strike in 1930s Texas. Uh, Tenayuka is messy. She doesn't fit, like, kind of the the old institutional style histories of uh, you know Christian social teaching or whatnot because she's she's working between communities um, and and working sometimes in cooperation with religious authorities but oftentimes um, in spite of them I, you know I think about someone like uh, you know again Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, these people who galvanized the United Farm Workers movement in in California in the 1960s and 70s, There are people who are uh, not waiting for the bishops to weigh in on um, economic life, on the status of the moral status of of these growers and their their uh, policies toward workers. They're intervening into these struggles, and they're doing so. I mean, if you look at the story of of the United Farm Workers, the UFW, I mean, these are folks who are carrying. Pictures of the Virgin de Guadalupe. Chavez is fasting and praying for the movement. Uh, he's citing Catholic social teaching, even as he's way out in front, beyond what the Church is willing to say um, in, in in the in the scheme of of that particular struggle. Um, and I think you'll find that that to be the case in in so many different ways. I mean, it was the case in in my work in Union Made, where I'm arguing that you know, working people are the ones who really innovated and really forged the first social gospels. They're, working people didn't need uh, bishops, priests, uh, pastors, seminary teachers to tell them what the Bible had to say about um, capitalism and, and and the way the industrial order of the late 19th century. They had an intuitive sense of this. They were responding out of their faith and and saw their faith and their quest for economic justice as being fully compatible, despite the fact that many of the leaders of their churches didn't see it that way. So I think you'll find it all over the place. I mean, in this this book, you know, Alison Green's essay on on kind of cooperatives and radical economics in the South, interracial cooperation. Jared Roll's fantastic book, Spirit of Rebellion, is all about the ways that Pentecostal revivalism in uh, late 1930s Missouri brought together white and black sharecropping farmers um, who found in the kind of language and rhetoric and, and ideas of a Pentecostal revival the power to come together across racial lines to fight for their rights as sharecroppers. So, I mean, so, I, mean I could go on for the rest of the hour just talking about different case studies of, of how working class activism messes the categories and, and, and shows you how working people have kind of really made an impact on the history of American Christianity. Yeah, well, speaking of messing those categories, um,
3: so uh, I am not a great historian of sort of the, the, the labor movement in the United States, but uh, the one, one example that always sticks out to me when I read your work uh, is the IWW in the way that they, uh, in the past, uh, would use, like, appropriate hymns to kind of spread their, their own gospel. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's a, a collapsing of, uh, like, you know, the IWW sort of party line and also religious music uh there's a great quote from utah Phillips uh sort of this the storyteller of the i w w who says that the uh, the wobblies would use hymns because they were really pretty but change the words so they were more true um so um to, to me I guess that's another example of uh the yeah I mean I guess the religiosity of uh everyday life of people um can you tell us a little bit more about that connection between yeah. the appropriation of of religious music and uh and labor yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the IWW's use of hymns and whatnot is often treated by labor historians as an example of kind of secularization. I mean, it's it's sort of a story that you can use to say, like, look at this is why we don't talk about May Day as a religious holiday because look, these people are taking the religious content out and inserting this kind of secular, radical working class rhetoric. I think the story is a lot more complicated than that, and I think the 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 in many ways, um, something like the IWW. You can, you know, if you sort of dive into it, you'll find that um, it's not a sort of one way. I think it's it's wrong to think about either this is like a story about secularization or a story about how like Christianity is what sparked the IWW. It's 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 more of a story of the fact that um, for many people, including many radical workers in the United States in the history of 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 the modern United States, um, some of life's deepest, most important questions have been most uh, persuasively answered for them in Christianity, even as they've found uh, the churches and institutionalized forms of Christianity to be deeply unsatisfactory. Um, So I think a lot of times in the IWW, you'll find folks who are, and, and, and in the radical working class more broadly, you find a lot of dissatisfaction with the churches, um, a lot of dissatisfaction with the ways that Christianity is kind of um, embodied in American life and in in and, and the institutions and, and religious leadership. But you also find a kind of uh, continual return in many cases to um, Christian ideas, to the person of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think about Dave Byrne's work on the the life and death of the radical historical Jesus and he's really arguing in that book that starting in the late 19th century, radical workers, the Haymarket Martyrs included, but people like Eugene Debs, folks in the IWW, see in Jesus, um, you know, some a, a model and an exemplar. And I, so I think um, this stuff is messy. And, and I think for a lot of folks, uh, the IWWs religiosity doesn't seem very religious because it's not contained within the structures of the of the kind of recognized churches and the and denominational bodies. Um, but in many cases, I think that folks in the IWW would say what the workers that I write about in Union Made say, which is, given where the churches fall in the class struggle, I'm out, and Jesus Christ is with me on the outside of the churches. Um, and so that's the kind of uh messiness that I think you'll find if you t- sort of dig into this intersection of the pew and a picket line.
1: Yeah, uh that's one thing I, I think I really admire about the book too is uh finding Jesus outside of the church, I guess, is kind of a, a really interesting and, and important narrative. Um I don't know, it's and it's cool how those stories kind of get told. I mean, when we talk to you about Union Made, uh that was a, a kind of common Um, common thing, right? That sometimes the churches betray the message of Christ for people who are actually suffering. Um, So dig that a lot. Uh, Could you talk a little bit too about how Christianity and the labor movement related to other struggles for justice in the U S like gender equality or black liberation? I mean, that's something that's reflected in the edited volume. It seems like uh, in a concern that's kind of on the table for history telling and that sort of thing. Um, So yeah. How do all those things go together?
2: Yeah. Well, I think uh, it would be nice, obviously, if there was some cohesive story to be told about how, you know, starting with the rise of industrial capitalism in the late 19th century, that uh, there was some kind of coherent, radical Christian movement that was seeking to to do all of those things. And I don't know that, unfortunately, you find that in the history. But what you do find are... um, Movements for racial justice, um, you know, black liberation um, movements for gender equality, movements for economic justice that oftentimes are developing um, apart from one another or or with some tenuous connection at times. I think about someone like uh, Ida B. Wells, who is a in many ways a pretty traditional Christian who's the most courageous, you know, anti-lynching advocate of the late 19th and early 20th century, her struggle in and that of like workers in the IWW are oftentimes not going to be like one struggle in the late 19th and early 20th century. But what you find, and I think, uh, you know, as you as you move further into the 20th century, in the 1930s, you do get a kind of um, merging of some of these movements, like the CIO becomes a vehicle for a kind of uh, cross-racial um, labor coalition in somewhat, you know, in, in contrast to the American Federation of Labor, which had long been um, permitted and, and sometimes been explicitly racist in its, in its uh, local unions. Um, you know, the CIO is going to bring together radicals, communists, socialists, uh, black and white, um, in the attempt to forge one big union, um, and that's always a tough, a, a tough thing to maintain. And it would be tough for the the CIO. I mean, the context of United States um, white supremacy is is pervasive, and and um, you know the the ability to sustain cross racial coalitions not easy. Um, but you know, again, in the civil rights movement, and 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 especially on the left side of the civil rights movement a lot of people would argue that uh the civil, the kind of classical civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s has an earlier instantiation in kind of the in the radical labor movement of the of the 1930s which included people like A Philip Randolph who has a somewhat tenuous connection I think to Christianity uh but you know his his work within the CIO which has extensive catholic Connections um, and and you know that 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 work being brought forward by people like King, who while he's often you know more associated with his "I Have a Dream" speech and the color of of their skin, not the color of their skin, but the content of their character, King also uh, has in many ways a sort of democratic socialist outlook that um, is less in tension with Randolph than it's sometimes portrayed. So I, I think that you know. Part of this new book that I'm working on, uh, it's called On Earth As It Is in Heaven, Social Christians and the Fight to End American Inequality. I mean, that is a book that's looking at the variety of struggles, but it hasn't been one long, big struggle of all the radical Christians fighting on the same team for the last 150 years. It's been a lot more uh, challenging than that to sustain these coalitions across kind of lines of race, class and gender, though. You know, there. I think if you read in kind of radical stuff today, you find people still think that, you know, Kianga Yamada-Taylor's work, I think about her book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, you know, still hoping uh, that that could come to fruition, something like a cross-racial class coalition of of workers in this country. So who knows? Uh, The hope never dies. But it hasn't been easy to hold people together across those lines, historically speaking
3: uh yeah for sure there's lots of complications uh i guess though what seems really instructive about your work just reading uh pew in the picket line and then union made too is that um it seems like uh yeah i mean like the religious life and the uh the collective power of labor unions actually like has an effect on culture which is like i guess the good news right um And uh, I guess it's instructive because it tells me that, like, you know, we probably shouldn't wait around for our clergy members to have all the bright ideas because they probably won't. Um, There's a a quote from your book where you say, uh, the American workplace itself has been a site of religious construction. We find in these essays that the monotony of Detroit's assembly line prompted auto workers to jettison longstanding religious valorizations of work, while the dangers of Joplin's minds while the dangers of Joplin's minds yielded new fascinations with faith healing. Um, so the idea, the idea here that I just mentioned that like the daily life of workers um, also can change theology is really interesting. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about that connection? Um, do you have any other yep. kind of good examples of how labor changes the way we think about religious ideas of labor? And um, yeah, do you have any ideas about the, uh, how the radically changing shape of our labor today with digital media and automation might be changing how Christians think about labor. That's a lot of questions all in one, but
2: that is a lot of questions all in one. <laughs> um, I think, you know, yeah, I, I think the basic insight here is where do people's um, religious ideas come from? Where do their, how do their religious practices shape? And, and I think our basic assumption in the pew and the picket line and, and what we found borne out in the history is that, you know, people's everyday lives. Um, there's a kind of mutually reinforcing thing here, where you know, religious traditions have. There's a, there's a corpus of ideas and practices that are passed down, but they're also inflected through um, the realities of people's lives. I mean, if you're a if you're a coal miner, um, you're facing you know dangerous circumstances every day of your life. It shapes the way that you think about your faith, and it shapes the way it shapes the kind of I, mean, I think there's been a lot of work in recent years showing how people's work really does impact the the kind of daily practice of of their faith. I don't really I mean, I think it's a great question to think about like how does how does the changing shape of the modern workplace, what does it you know portend for American Christianity, American religious life? Um, gosh. I want to know the answer to that question too. (laughs) I don't know that I know, uh, but I think, I think it's, I I don't doubt that there will be that, you know, in 25 years, 30 years, people look back and, and really see this kind of shift to, uh, you know, post union in many ways, it seems right now, at least. uh, And uh, increasingly digital work from home. I mean, all this kind of stuff. I I mean, I do think that this portends big things. I mean, I think partly it, it, it seems to me like it, know the the ways in which sure digital stuff brings people together but it also isolates people work from you know the the work from home kind of thing how do you organize how do you fight for collective bargaining and whatnot in workplaces that are you know no longer it's no longer like 100 people on an assembly line it's it's people stream i mean those are those are really complicated kinds of uh Questions and I, I think the modern labor movement is trying to figure out those things, and I think that uh, churches and, and religious bodies are trying to figure out those things. I will say, I mean, one of the things, and kind of hearkening back to your question earlier about uh, how does how do these stories relate to modern struggles? I was really struck when we did that uh, event with Interfaith Worker Justice last fall. Uh, a number of people mentioned that you know in their churches. Their churches were often progressive on, at least on the face of it, on racial issues. But that if you brought up labor unions, if you brought up um, these kinds of things, that it was sort of a non-starter. And I thought that was really fascinating in terms of, um, you know, the ways in which, and I think about that in a lot of religious contexts with religious institutions struggling in this moment. Um, I think about, you know, there's been interesting work done in recent years on uh Kind of religious institutions as themselves workplaces um, that oftentimes are pretty difficult workplaces for 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 workers. Um, and what does it mean? I mean, about Janice Teeson's work on Mennonites in Canada, and she's done all this fascinating research showing how you know Mennonites who are you know in many ways you know very concerned about justice are also at the same time like really hostile to unions. And and so I, I think that this stuff on you know, these stories in the Pew and the picket line, the stories of kind of the the history of the radical labor movement past, do pose really interesting questions for progressive religious communities today, which um, you know, are progressive on some issues and maybe maybe not enough on some of these key, key class uh, questions and key questions about, about labor. So I think that shows in the fact that, I mean, America is a lot more religious in terms of, you know, religious affiliation, even as the, those numbers are dwindling, but they're still a lot higher than the percentage of uh, union workers in this country.
1: Uh, that's a pretty interesting comment to think about. Um, <laughs> a little while back, we were talking with Kaya Oaks, who's a Catholic journalist and she does all kinds of really interesting writing And um, she has written on the the nuns, uh, the N-O-N-E-S phenomenon. Um, So, you know, young Christians are sort of less and less likely to identify with specific religious denominations, but that doesn't mean that they're not spiritual per se. It's just a a different kind of uh, maybe kind of like floating spirituality or something. Um, And it does sort of seem like there's a a similar issue happening with a lot of labor um, problems now. I was just talking with a friend at this Mayday event, who's uh, part of organizing a, a union for the video games industry. And he was like, it's like a really weird thing because software developers and programmers, like it's a lot of contract labor and people are kind of like moving from job to job or like getting let go after doing a big project. And it's actually like really hard to uh, make all those things coalesce. But that's the nature of labor today uh, in a lot for a lot of people, even for people with like more boring or like traditional jobs. Right. Um so yeah I don't know do you see any kind of connections between those two sociological phenomena like um people are kind of floating around religion but they're not necessarily not religious and in the same way people are are kind of floating around to like issues of uh, economic justice but they're not uh you know they're skeptical maybe of like joining unions or that kind of a thing
2: I've often wondered I mean if the the nuns phenomenon especially among younger people in this country um, if it isn't directly linked in some ways to the church's inaction or kind of relative stodginess around a lot of these kinds of issues. Um, you know, I think especially I've been really interested. There's been a number of pieces showing how um, millennials um, and, and even the generation uh, coming up behind them are in many cases, uh, harkening back to really, really concerned about some of the kind of economic justice questions that really drove the left of the 1930s. Um, and it's not clear to me that, again, that that the churches in this country are particularly concerned with those issues. So I, I've wondered if there is kind of a connection there, and if if churches were really out in front in these struggles for justice would. Would there be uh, more interest in affiliation among younger people? I mean, I don't know. I think I think people are still trying to figure out the nuns in general. But I think I think part of the part of the story is that these questions about um, the kind of structure of of the economy and what people call this new gilded age that they aren't things that have a kind of visceral component to them, or it's at least more difficult to kind of paint them in these visceral ways. That I do think, you know, help to stoke interest in social movements, I think part of what we're seeing is a kind of a long-term shift in the in the kind of, uh, in, you know, in the sort of rising inequality. I mean, how do you capture rising inequality? How do you galvanize widespread interest around it? How do you get people organized around it? I think, you know, if you think about like an organization like Black Lives Matter, which has been really, I think, effective at galvanizing concern around, you um, police violence and against the brutality uh, toward, toward people of color, which can be captured on video. And, and that's part of what's driven the movement. I think Black Lives Matter and other kind of social justice organizations of the present moment struggle a little bit more to get people really organized around um, these kind of longer term questions about the structure of c- the class structure of the United States and the kind of worrisome um Historic levels of inequality that we're experiencing right now—it's just—it's just harder to explain that. It's harder to give an account of where that's coming from, and hard to kind of get people, you know, rallied around it. I think that that we have seen more of that in the last few years. That's why I think we're at an interesting moment. Um, obviously, the twenty sixteen election—you know—a lot of talk around inequality, whether or not that can be channeled into kind of a revival of some of the kinds of movements we're talking about in the few in the book I don't know. I mean, I think it'll be really interesting to see, obviously, around the, the economic recession in 2008, you know, you got Occupy Wall Street, a lot of kind of uh, talk and interest in these issues, but not an ability to kind of translate that into, at least yet, a kind of uh, movement that could exact change at the policy level. And I think that's the, the thing that will, you know, I mean, as a historian, I don't I don't know what to expect. Uh, it's happened in the past. I know that you know the the coalition that won the New Deal legislation in the in the nineteen thirties did it through hard struggle. And and whether it can happen again, I don't know.
3: Um, well, to round the conversation out, um, do you want to tell us about your new book? Pre uh, preemptively promote it?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I still got a lot of work to do on it, but you know, it's 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 like I said, it's called "On Earth as It Is in Heaven." social Christians and the fight to end American inequality. And it basically looks at, uh, again, these kind of different diverse Christian movements that have seen the fight against inequality as a central part of what it means to be Christian in the modern world. So I think about it as kind of a new history of the social gospel in American life. Oftentimes the social gospel is thought of as kind of this crusty theological movement in elite white Protestant circles. Obviously Union Made was challenging that view, offering kind of a working class origin story to the movement. Um, I'm thinking about social Christianity and about this this story that I'm, I'm, I'm writing up now as a kind of uh, long tradition in American life that really gets, gets going in, in a fulsome way after the Civil War and that peaks, not in the early 20th century as the old story would have it, but rather in the mid 20th century with these massive faith infused labor and civil rights movements, that fundamentally changed the nation, and I think, like I said, you can look to people like Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, and find, if you if you look back, um, kind of origin stories in the in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century when you get um, grassroots movements calling for Christian people to address the fight for uh, a more equal society as sort of a central piece of. of what it means to be christian so that's the that's the basic overview so it's a story that'll that will trace kind of in three parts the the emergence at the grassroots of this kind of new consciousness in the wake of the civil war uh in the early 20th century looking at how social gospels gained institutional ground both within the churches and within the state culminating in the new deal but there's a big backlash against the new deal and so the energy moves back to the grassroots and that's where you have people like Day and Chavez, King, etc., who um, would be able to sort of draw on these earlier traditions and mobilize um, lots and lots of Americans to not just change the churches but change the society in which in which we live. So, I'm thinking a lot about this intersection of Christianity and inequality right now, which the story of May Day is certainly uh, an important part of.
1: <laughs> uh, cool. Well we can maybe ask you like, uh, we have this stock question that sometimes we remember to ask people and sometimes we don't. Um, but I just remembered, uh, we almost forgot. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, what's something that you wish that leftists maybe knew about Christianity and, uh, what's something that you wish that Christianity knew about or Christians knew about the history of the left or labor in general?
2: Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, well, I think the thing that I wish that left, folks knew about christianity is that like i said i think i think given that we're in you know we're living in the wake of a generation in which christianity in the united states has been in its institutional forms especially but also to some extent at the grassroots pretty strongly aligned with the right um i would like for people on the left to understand that there's nothing necessary about that alignment and that in the past uh as recently as you know the mid 20th century that christianity was uh a fast friend of the left and of uh the causes that are kind of close to the heart of of the left today so i think that's that's one thing that i wish the left knew about christianity and i think conversely i wish that uh more american christians who i think partly shaped by the history i was just referencing um, kind of have this intuitive sense that, uh, you know, to be on the left is to, to reject Christianity or something like that. And I just think, again, that that's historically, that's just not the case. Um, and so I wish that, um, I guess I wish that there could be uh, some kind of um, better understanding of the ways in which the histories of Christianity and the left are actually much more intertwined Um, whereas, you know, it can seem from our vantage here in, in the early 21st century, like, you know, this, these are two separate roads and, uh, historically that hasn't been the case and looking ahead, it doesn't have to be the case. Um, even though there's a lot of work to get done, um, if, if more people on both sides are going to recognize those possibilities.
3: Well, I think that sounds pretty cool. (laughs) I think that's a good answer to that question.
1: Yeah. Thanks cool well uh thanks so much heath for coming on the show anyhow and we'll be sure to look forward to your new book coming out do you have any idea when it will be out or that's uh it's still too early to say
2: still too early to say but hopefully uh around the time of the next presidential election right around then uh (laughs) nice (laughs) we'll see when exactly how how long exactly it takes me to write this thing up but uh hopefully hopefully by around that time
3: yeah sure uh,
0: thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Thanks so much, guys. Always good to talk to you.
0: When Jesus come to town, the working folks around believed what he did say. The bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on a cross and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Now the working people followed him around sang and shouted gay but the cops and soldiers nailed him in the air and they laid jesus christ in his grave
1: thanks for listening to the magnificast if you tuned in to hear the magnificats uh we're sorry but also thanks for sticking around uh, thanks heath also for coming back on the show really great to have heath i always love uh history podcasts i learn so much and then i feel way smarter and then i talk to other people and they're like christians can't be can't be good lefties and i say well i don't know i listened to a historian and he told me they can so it must be true um if you liked what you heard here and how could you not you can go ahead and find us all over the internet we're on twitter at the magnificast we're on facebook at the magnificast Uh, We're also on two podcast networks, uh, Theology Corner and Critical Mediations, also full of really good stuff, so you can find some more uh, great, great things to listen to and read and check out. Um, And lastly, if you want to support us, uh, you can do that on patreon.com slash themagnificast. Thanks so much.
0: See you next week. Well, the people held their breath when they heard about his death. Everybody wondered why it was the landlord and the soldiers that he hired To nail Jesus Christ in the sky This song was made in New York City of rich mans and preachers and slaves If Jesus was to preach like he preached in Galilee, they would lay Jesus Christ in his grave